There's an old story that's told of a monastery that was about to close, just five monks remaining. They wondered what could they do to save the monastery, to help it grow and continue to be a place of refuge and rest, wisdom and work. One of the monks ventured out to visit the old wise hermit. Surely he would know what to do. The monk and the hermit spent hours together in prayer, reading scripture, studying, and in conversation, but ultimately ending their time together with neither one of them having any answers to the dilemma of how to save the monastery. As the old monk left the older hermit, both commiserating that they had made seemingly no progress, the hermit threw out one last brief word, almost in passing. The Messiah is one of you, he said. And with that, he shut the door and the monk left. The monk made his journey all the way back to the monastery, wondering what in the world it meant that the Messiah is one of you. He returned to his little haven of refuge with the other monks where they were eagerly awaiting the wise and, and creative solution to saving the monastery. The monk confided, the hermit and I came up with nothing. Disappointment fell upon them all. Almost as an afterthought, the monk said, Oh, the wise old hermit did have a parting comment for me, but I have no idea what it means. He simply said to me before I left, The Messiah is one of you. With that hanging in the air between all of them, they went about their daily work of prayer and meditation and study. But each one of them, unbeknownst to the other, began to let that statement, the Messiah is one of you, live in their being. And they began, each one, one by one, to go through each monk in their mind to try to discover if indeed he was the one that was the Messiah. Each time the monks started with the list of reasons why monk so-and-so could not be the Messiah because we're good at doing that. But when really pushed, each one could come up with a reason for why each monk might just indeed be the Messiah. And then it dawned on each one of them, well, I guess it could be me. That list was longer for why they themselves could not be the Messiah, as you can imagine. But when pressed and when pushed to look at themselves the way God might see them, they could, they could find reason to think, perhaps it is me. And once all the monks started treating each other and themselves as if they, each one, might be the Messiah, everything began to change. As people would come and visit the monastery and have picnic on the grounds and worship with them in the chapel, there was an aura about them that just made people want to be in their presence. And before they knew it, the monastery 
began to grow and did not have to close. If the separating of the sheep and the goats is not so much about who's in and who's out as some like to preach it, but rather it is about treating everyone as if she or he is the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, right here among us and within us, how might our lives change? And how might our church change? So I began to go through the church roles to see if I could determine if the Messiah was one of us and who it might be. Maybe it's Anne. I could probably, if pressed, come up with some reasons that it might not be Anne. But we all know it absolutely could be her because she has this uncanny knack for welcome and putting names and faces together. And if Jesus was anything, he was one who welcomed all. Plus, there's always fun games and fine prizes. And I really think Jesus would buy into that. Maybe that's what seals the deal that it's her. Of course, it could be the other Anne with an E. It's got to be her, because literally almost every Sunday, she opens the door, and with a genuine smile, coupled with eye contact, she says, welcome to worship, and she means it. Maybe it's her. I could come up with all kinds of reasons why it couldn't be Jimmy, but I skipped over that part and went straight to all the reasons why it could be. Jimmy. His passion for those with addiction and the way that he shows compassion with tough love and his natural knack for, for being with those who have fallen on hard times. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's because he's been there himself on hard times or maybe it's him just because it's him. I wonder if it's Laura. But which Laura? could be the one that's here and ready and willing and able to do anything that's needed pretty much every single time the doors are open. Oh, and she sings like a bird in the choir holding down that alto section through thick and thin. It could be the other newer Laura, the one that when she speaks, I feel like I'm eavesdropping on a conversation with God simply because of the way her voice sounds. It's the inflection of love and care and humility and mercy with which she speaks. It could be either one of them. I wonder if it might be Asha. Just the way she comes bounding forward with a big hug. Surely the Messiah bounds towards us with a big hug. Maybe it's Reed. Because he goes out of his way to include people, even when they sometimes make it hard to include them. But he persists, taking it on as a challenge. The harder they resist, the harder he includes. I watched it with my own two eyes just last Sunday night when he didn't know anyone was watching. Maybe it's him. I think it might be him. Or her.
If you look at the full context of this passage, Jesus seems to be saying that if there is any sort of final judgment, then the criteria on which you will be judged will not be what you know or what you say you believe, but rather what you have actually done or neglected to do for the less fortunate. Specifically in the passage today, whether you've helped feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, and visit the sick and imprisoned. Indeed, Jesus seems to be promising to those of us born centuries too late to meet the historical Jesus in person that the closest we will ever come to the transformative face-to-face encounter with Jesus is to aid and be fully present to the poor and the marginalized. And that includes all of us, some literally, all of us figuratively at some point in time. Dare I wonder, could it be me? If it's me, that would fall under anything as possible. But maybe it's me. And so with all the considerations of each one of us as I went through the church roles of asking our church, maybe it's him, maybe it's her, maybe it's me. Park Road Baptist Church became a place where everyone treated one another as if they were Jesus. And we, each one, treated ourselves as if we were Jesus. And because we did that, we all became sheep. For no one wanted to be the goat that simply could not imagine that Jesus was in our midst. May it be so. Amen. Today, Amy and I are concluding this fall preaching series that we have called Jesus Taught What Jesus Learned, looking at the Hebrew text and the gospel lesson, wondering what Jesus might have learned as he studied those Hebrew texts growing up and how what he learned might have influenced his teaching. We've reversed today. Amy went first, and I'm, I'm going second. I hope it will be obvious, this connection between what Jesus learned from reading Ezekiel and how he came to teach the parable that Amy has just preached on. Ezekiel chapter 34. The full uh, chapter is worth reading for a fuller understanding of the prophet's mind concerning the state of Israel. And as I so often do, I will tell you today that though this text is 2,500 years old, it could very well, I believe, have been written to the church in the United States today rather than to Judaism of ancient Israel. Listen to an abbreviated uh, passage from Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for the sheep and will seek them out. The king in the ancient world was often regarded uh, in the imagery of a shepherd. Um, And here that imagery is, is employed and extended for God. 
as shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. Now, Ezekiel is writing during the Babylonian exile in the 6th century, but he is reflecting on the scattering of the Israelites over the centuries, even looking back many generations to the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in the 6th century and now to the exile of the people in Babylon. Excuse me, uh, uh, Israel, uh, the, the destruction of the northern kingdom was the 8th century and now the destruction of, of uh, J- Jerusalem in the 6th century. Following that fall of Jerusalem uh, by the Babylonian army, some of the people who were not exiled to Babylon, some of them fled as well. They immigrated to Egypt. So uh, Ezekiel alludes to these scattered people all over the ancient world by the traumatic events that scattered them, their days of thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. With the current conflict in Gaza, I think I only need to note here the power of place and the potential for conflict in the lives of people and their religions. God says, I will bring them back to this land. I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by their watercourses and in all the inhabited parts of the land. I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. Prior to this chapter, Ezekiel has harshly outlined how the kings and leaders of Israel have so failed that God has usurped their leadership. God will be the shepherd that the kings failed to be. I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. Now, these harsh words follow a biblical ideal that many Americans, especially the devoted so-called free market capitalists among us, may not appreciate. Consistently, the Bible depicts God's priority for the poor. Do you remember Mary's song when the angel announces her pregnancy with Jesus? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God who has looked with favor on the lowliness of this servant. God has scattered the proud, has brought down the powerful, has lifted up the lowly. This emphasis of social justice What some call an eschatological reversal is everywhere in the Bible once you see it. We hear it every year at Christmas when choirs sing the Isaiah text, Every valley will be exalted, every mountain and hill will be brought low. This is a theological comment, folks, not a geographical one or a geological one. There's an undeniably social commentary, a politically revolutionary element to Scripture if you are willing to hear it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, the upper crust and the least of these. I will judge between the sheep and the sheep, and I, the Lord, will be their God. You have heard the ancient story. 
John Holbert says of the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel is often a tough nut to crack. After listing a number of the prophet's weird images, um, Holbert says a modern psychiatrist would have a long series of sessions with this guy searching for any number of known psychoses. She might even find one or two new ones. Of course, psychoanalyzing a Hebrew prophet is like reading a biology textbook for its literary style. Wrong category, wrong approach. Ezekiel, however weird he sounds, is doing what all Israelite prophets do. They bring the word of Yahweh into the world in which they live. And that always means what they say very few people are going to be glad to hear. Ezekiel 34 is a parade example of themes Israel's leaders are little likely to find pleasure, pleasurable to their comfortable lives. Now talking about psychoanalyzing weird language, the title of my homily comes from a little rhyme of a comedian who said with ironic humor, roses are red, violets are blue, I've got two personalities and so do I. Ezekiel says God will judge between the sheep and the sheep, between us and us. Maybe if we can hear the critique, take seriously enough God's justice, maybe God judges even between one me and another me. But as John Holbert says, few people are glad to have the prophets interrupting their or our comfortable lives. How did Jesus learn to teach using such tough parables we've been reading these last few weeks? Harsh punishment dealt to the unfaithful, weeping and gnashing of teeth, sheep and goats separated with eternal consequence. Where could Jesus have learned such a message of divine judgment? I can't imagine. Can you? In his evaluation of this text, John Holbert continues, Yahweh is not only in the business of gathering and rescuing, binding and healing. Yahweh is also bent on applying justice. Now the Hebrew word mishpat is translated both justice and judgment. So Holbert says Yahweh is also bent on applying justice, that quintessential prophetic word to the inequalities and the iniquities of the land. The inequities, inequalities, and iniquities. It's not a message good liberals want to hear. God's gathering and rescuing, right on, preacher. Divine binding and healing, amen, sister. But judging between the sheep and the goats and casting out the goats, what was Jesus thinking? Worse yet, judging between the sheep and the sheep. What was Ezekiel smoking? But judgment is part of life. I reminded you not long ago that all NBA players are now judged by the skill of LeBron James or the shooting finesse of Steph Curry. All golfers are measured by the undeniable record of Tiger Woods. Tenors in the opera world will always stand against the incomparable voice of Luciano Pavarotti. No one needs to hurl insults from the outside. It's just a fact of the matter. 
leave it to the prophets around us to simply call it like it is. Judgment is reality. So if God is justice, if God is just, when we fall short, as we so often do, we are judged by our sins. God need not judge us for them. The Christian church in this country today is being judged. Now, I'm not making a prophetic claim. I'm just observing the reports, reading the reports and observing the facts. The church is in retreat like it never has been. With the growing pluralism of a free nation, the secularization of our culture in recent decades, the church has been experiencing a steady decline. And anyone who cannot connect the dots of the last six years, the influence of a politically motivated brand of conservative Christianity, and the rapid decline of the church, both in participation in the pews as well as in respect in the culture, anyone who cannot connect those dots is not paying attention. Now, you may not want to call that God's judgment. The prophets always did. They saw the rise and fall of nations, cataclysms of culture, immoral political leaders, scandals in the church. They saw these as signs. And because they believed God was to be found in all things, they saw God's hand in the fall of Israel in the 8th century, in the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon in the 6th century, in the oppressive occupation of Rome in the day of Jesus, in the events of history. They saw God's judgment. Maybe they were wrong. Maybe it was terrible theology. Maybe they were too harsh. Their God was wrathful, too unforgiving. Maybe, maybe they just understood the truth of consequences. And looking back at what had happened and hoping to motivate the people to change their misguided ways, Maybe they just interpreted the events of the world as God's judgment. The failure of a nation to measure up. And who could argue with that? Any denial of God's hand in the process is just as much a theological interpretation as was the prophet's understanding. It could be terrible, antiquated Old Testament theology. But it could also be the liberal leanings of today's process theologians who see God never far removed out there casting judgments on us, but in the working processes of all things, from the micro to the macro, from the quantum to the cosmological, from quarks and atoms to Adam and Ezekiel and Jesus and Donald Trump and Joe Biden and you and me, God in the process. The Christian church is being judged today. There can be no doubt about it. Only time will tell how tomorrow's prophets will record it. In every age, people on every side claim God's approval. We're the sheep, they're the goats. We're the chosen ones, the true church, the moral majority. They're the goyim, the heathens, the woke leftists. Only time will tell. For our part, 
in the meantime, and it is a very mean time. We can stay out of the fray. Avoid angry social media. Lower the temperature. De-escalate the rhetoric. We need not be right, only faithful to the Jesus who sometimes spoke in harsh, in the harsh voice of the prophetic tradition, but who always lived compassion, welcoming the outcast, challenging the orthodoxy of insiders and outsiders, unflinching from his message of love over power, even though it killed him. We can be the angry, fearful sheep angling for power in government, strategizing God's judgment through the world's most powerful military, or we can be the sheep who love. As in ancient Israel 2,500 years ago, so in the United States of America today, there are sheep and there are sheep. I don't want to be a sheep. I want to be a sheep. Armed with the justice of God and the love of Jesus, may it be so.